0: we are seeing nation states weaponizing the medium. And that creates opportunities for information warfare, psychological operations, anonymity that enables people to conduct themselves in ways that aren't really conducive to a healthy citizenry. And we've got to do something about it.
1: Welcome to Think Atlantic, a series by IRI's Transatlantic Strategic Division, in which we provide you with thought leadership for the future of the transatlantic space. My name is Thibaut Musurg, and I am your host for this show. In today's episode, we are going to talk about the internet, social media, and democracy, certainly a hot topic these days. And joining me to discuss all this is my guest, Cyrus Krohn, author of Bombarded, How to Fight Back Against the Online Assault on Democracy. Cyrus has been in the digital business practically since the beginning. If you read his book, you will learn how, as a White House intern, he helped install the Internet in the White House back in the early 1990s. Uh, Since then, he has moved back and forth between Washington and the West Coast, mostly in the West Coast, though, consolidating his uh, reputation as a frontline digital innovator, among other projects at Microsoft, Slate.com in the early days, Yahoo, and the Republican National Committee, which is where... We actually met 13 years ago. Uh, I would like to point out that beyond uh, his internet, artificial intelligence, and social media business, Cyrus also dedicates some of his spare time to helping IRI, and he's done trainings with us around the world, to which we are very thankful, Cyrus. So Cyrus, welcome to the show, and thanks for taking the time to, for joining us today.
0: Thibaut, thank you so much for having me, and thank you to IRI for all that you and your staff are doing around the world to help keep democracy strong. I really appreciate it, and thanks for having me.
1: Thank you, Cyrus. Let's start right here, right now. And as I mentioned a moment ago, uh, we met for the first time in 2008, different world. Uh, It was the US presidential campaign. You worked as a digital strategist for the Republican Party. Uh, I was a campaigner working for Nicolas Sarkozy's center-right party. And I had been sent to see how you guys were doing the internet for campaigning. And back in the days, everything looked so great. We were looking at the the future with a, a lot of optimism. And I, I remember we had vividly, we had a very optimistic conversation about how the power of social media was going to change the world, to transform it for the better, make information uh, more available to us all, etc. And, and yet now, here we are 12 years later, and things are not looking so great, let's face it. Uh, Twitter and Facebook have all but become synonymous with Polarization and vitriolic debate, I can't recall the number of books that I've read recently that talk about the internet badly about surveillance capitalism and all sorts of things. Uh, There is barely a press article in the news on the internet that doesn't receive at least one accusation of being fake news. Things are looking pretty bad, but fast forward another 12 years into the dystopia, which you describe at the opening of your book, and things are even worse. We have a political debate that's been hijacked by Democrat and Republican fringes. Cynical citizens do not pay attention to the ultra-personalized targeted ads they get on an almost constant basis. People don't even agree on actual facts. And generally, people don't agree on anything anymore. So my question is this. What the hell went wrong? What the hell is going wrong? And how are we getting to this uh, dystopia you described at the beginning of your book?
0: Well, thank you. You know, I do remain an optimist. There certainly a lot of concern and pessimism in the book, but at my core, I'm an optimist. I still believe in the power of technology and the good that it can do for society, but it's a platform run amok. You know, government tends to be rather slow. And they're certainly not keeping up with the pace at which technology is changing society and the innovations that are occurring. I know we'll talk about this a little bit later, but I think that it's time the government step in and address some of the ills that are affecting us, not just in the United States, but globally. Now, each nation's governments are going to have to address their concerns in their own respective ways. And we, we, we see interesting examples of, of that around the world. But as it pertains to the Atlantic and the United States and Europe, it's my belief that we're regulating the internet in such little form currently, that it's allowing these challenges to impact us. And specifically, what I mean by that is that there's very little means of being able to authenticate the end user when they log on to the internet. And you know we are seeing nation states weaponizing the medium and that creates opportunities for um, information warfare, psychological operations, anonymity that enables people to conduct themselves in ways that aren't really conducive to a healthy citizenry. And we've got to do something about it. So to your point about all these books that are out there, I myself have become tired of reading the groveling and frustration and consternation and was distraught that I wasn't seeing enough about solutions. And having been involved in technology for so many years, working at Microsoft and Yahoo and elsewhere and having a pretty good grasp of some of these things, I wanted to write a book about remedies and solutions and how to fight back. We can sit here and complain all we want, but if we don't actually go do something about it and fix it, it's just par for the course for years to come. And so, as you mentioned at the outset of the book, I lay out a dystopian scenario that if we don't right some of these wrongs, what the world and politics might look like in 2032. And then at the end of the book, there's the utopian view. If we do uh, adopt some of the Suggestions or or framework that I propose and and hope that that leads to you know better outcomes. But yeah, that's the that's the general gist.
1: We're going to talk about the solution. I I want us to talk more about the solution than about the problem. But uh, I think it's worth uh, talking a little bit about the problems which you you identify at, in in the first part of your of your book. And here, what I'm going to do is that I'm going to put my evil Frenchman cap on and uh, I'm going to play the devil's advocate to answer. To try to answer or to to challenge you on uh, some of the problems that that you describe. So one of them, one of these issues is, is what uh, Shoshana Zuboff has called surveillance capitalism, and I, I think you actually quote her in your book. And basically, we're talking about the the commodification of personal data with the core purpose of profit making, and that makes the constant easier words basically making the constant data collection on the internet a danger to human liberty autonomy and well-being you know i guess i can take that point and you know when when i see on, on the website ultra targeted ads about stuff that i i discussed and not it didn't even google search it, it actually does worry me but At the same time, you know, I also worked in uh, customer relationship management at the beginning of my career in direct marketing. And it seems to me that it's, you know, all these things are nothing new. And we heard that before, you know, when advertising appeared, when databases appeared, when customer CRM uh, uh, appeared, that we had the same sort of criticisms. I mean, you know, looking for your public and communicating with it doesn't seem that new to me. And, you know, the Republic survived a buildup of, you know, mega databases of the GOP and the DNC back in the 2000s. So I'm wondering, you know, whether the really disturbing thing is not the fact that we're constantly surveilled, but whether maybe we're not as unpredictable as as we think we are, right? I'm going to let you answer this, but I'm going to keep on playing the devil's advocate and and, and ask you another question about polarization, which actually is one big chunk of, of your analysis of the problem. So you actually mention in, in, in your book that polarization in a vitriolic press is nothing new. The 19th century was at least as corrosive as it is now, at least in the United States. On the other side of the Atlantic, uh, you also had strong Communist Party press in places like Italy and France. And they were selling pretty much, you know, the sort of alternative facts that we uh, uh, that we are talking about today. So now I'm taking off the evil Frenchman hat. Uh, And here's the question about all this. If ads targeting is not new, if polarizing media and, and alternative media reality is not new, then what makes the current online trend that you are describing in your book more dangerous than what happened before? Well,
0: let's unpack that and go back to your early marketing examples and the ultimate desire to enable one to one marketing, which is the Holy Grail to be able to understand someone so succinctly that you put a product in front of them that they that they have to purchase because it's just what they need whether they, whether they knew it or not. If you reflect on the early days of the voter files let's 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 just let's use political marketing since that's the general theme here. You remember the early days of of database marketing when Carl um, Rove and Ed Gillespie and others garnered credit for Uh, beginning to take um, consumer market data and append that to the voter file, it was pretty mundane. It was, you know, if you drive a Volvo or a truck, you may be one of, you know, these, these two political parties. And then the internet came along, and that enabled a little bit more sophistication around targeting. And I'll give you one example. In the early days of the internet in the mid to late 90s we had the portals aol msn and yahoo and they had registered users well you could marry those audiences based off of their registration status to identify their political persuasion and then target them electronically but that was very rudimentary um where that has evolved to now we're we're even at the early stages of this is geolocation. So not only knowing that the individual drives a truck, but where it was physically driven, who that individual was interacting with based off of the mobile device ID, which can then triangulate and identify people based off of not only their proximity, but proximity to one another. Um, And that really does get back to surveillance Capitalism, whether it's the government or a political party, the ease at which we can now track, monitor, and maintain understanding on individuals is far more sophisticated than publishing an article in a, a print offering that was either disseminated by horse or buggy. Right. The the undercurrent here is that disinformation has been permeating society in different ways since the beginning of time. But I would argue that technology is enabling new forms of not only pushing disinformation, but the consumption of it, and then monitoring the individuals who are consuming that level of information. And that creates a whole new set of capabilities. We haven't even really gotten to the true, I think, capabilities of, of the data that's going to be gleaned from IoT devices and how that Impacts are targeting. We're moving more towards. You know, here we are in a podcast using audio. We talk to our intelligent agents like Amazon Alexa, Siri, Cortana, Bigsby, and uh, you know, there have been articles written about those devices always on in your home and capturing all forms of conversation within the privacy of you know your living room. And how can that information be utilized to to refine? Targeting and marketing, so it's just gotten better. And as it's getting better, it's getting
1: worse. And uh, yeah, more more dangerous because it's become super effective and extremely intrusive. And I guess we don't know or we don't realize how intrusive it well, is. Well,
0: I use I, I use the fictional example in the book, which you know, frankly, isn't far from fiction today because it could be done now based off of the methods I mentioned earlier. In in a scenario where an individual goes to visit a church because a member of their family recently died and the ability to go and look at death records, geolocation lookup, political affiliation, and then tying that to a legislative matter such as a death tax. And because someone's going to visit a church after a relative died, we're now going to be able to see marketing messages tied to Legislative matters. I mean, we're 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 there now. It's just is the level of creep factor that Mm -hmm. individuals are willing to accept um, before they tune out.
1: Well, and and let's let's get back to the solutions because I think that's what we want to avoid. But uh, before we do that, I just have to say uh, this part where you describe this incident in or. You know, in this dystopia uh in, in 2032 actually is re- really uh really scary, even more so because uh the ad is done by a hologram. But I have already said too much and this is more of a teaser for uh for the book. But let's get back to the solutions because that's what we said at the beginning. We want to focus more on the solution. Uh, than on the problem, because the problem, there are plenty of books about it, but not enough on the solution. So the great thing about Bombarded is that you actually offer a five-step program to fight back against the online assault on democracy. So the question is going to be very open. Please tell us more, because we're all interested after everything that we have lived for the past year.
0: Well, I will tease these concepts, and I hope that your audience will read them in depth and there should be a healthy debate around them. You know, these were intended to be thought starters that are a framework for uh, creating solutions. And, you know, a few of them are more controversial than others. Uh, We've got to start somewhere. And so I wanted to introduce some big concepts and hope that they can you know, evolve in their thinking, and people adopt them as their own and evolve them to what's best for, you know, each respective um, state or 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 nation. But let's start with the overarching themes for uh, the United States in particular. You know, one of the things in the United States that we've seen waning in the classrooms is teaching civics, and I think that's very important so that our citizenry understand. Um, the constructs of our democracy, uh, the Bill of Rights, the Constitution, how we interact with each other in society, uh, the different branches of government. If you don't even understand how your basic government functions and you're not learning that in school, then how can you be expected to be a good citizen if you don't understand the, the, the basic tenets of society. So I think that I know with
1: Cyrus. We have exactly the same problem on, on this side of the Atlantic. So uh, I think you are you are talking about the U.S., but it, it's really a transatlantic issue.
0: Well, and and presumably a, a global one. Uh, but you know, let's understand our own house and you know cl- clean it up. Um, and there's a there's a gentleman here in Seattle, Eric Liu, who used to do some work for President. Bill Clinton, and he's created a very interesting group called Citizen University, and they are growing around the country, and people convene on Civic Saturdays, uh, kind of analogous to Church Sunday, and the goal of Civic Saturdays is is to invigorate civics throughout our communities, and I I, I really like that model and and hope that, you know, it, it, it evolves, Um, anonymity, which I've struggled with in terms of how to approach this because of my strong beliefs in privacy, but also the importance of knowing that we are all in this together and need to communicate openly uh, creates a couple of challenges. I have a firm respect for privacy, but I believe there's a way to allow you to maintain your anonymity online, but still have some controls that authenticate you on the back end. And the scenario that I like to use is as a citizen of this country, We have a social security number or a driver's license or some government issued ID, passport that correlates directly to to who we are. Well, what if there was a code, a known digital citizen code that required you to log on um, to the web just as you would when you go to access money from an ATM machine with a code and it verifies who you are via a PIN number? And then when you're logged on, you are at least aware, maybe even subconsciously, that what you say and do online does ultimately tie back to a unique identifier. So if you were to commit an illegal act or threaten someone or do, do, do something that was illegal in your respective country... That there would be some recourse for authorities to be able to map that back to the individual. So I'm not suggesting that everything that you say and do online shouldn't be anonymous, but I believe it should be tied back Mm. to an individual. Data privacy laws are creating unique challenges. And I think, in principle, They're sound ideas, but they're not ultimately practical at the one-off level. You know, in Europe, you have GDPR. In the United States, we have one state, California, with um, the California Consumer Privacy Act. The challenges that that's created for business throughout the United States is difficult. Uh, for any number of reasons, including monetary ones, now we see other states here uh, where I reside—Washington State, Vermont, and elsewhere—all posing their own respective legislation. My concerns about that approach are that, having built businesses that had to be CCPA compliant, it's challenging. Now try to multiply that, you know, by forty-nine other states and. It's going to be unbearable for business to manage. I think the best way to resolve that is through a federal data privacy approach where we as a nation all adopt one model and adhere to that versus having to uh, acknowledge 50 different models and have your systems support those. That's just untenable, unmanageable, and it's going, to, it's, it's going to erode margins of business in ways that I just don't think is, is sustainable. So I'm proposing a, a, a federal approach to that. Um, you know, information has become so challenging to know right from wrong, fact from fiction, because we've lost the role of the arbiter or the editor, the, the, the professional who distills information and determines what's credible or not for the community to read. And that's particularly impactful at the local level. What's happened is that the large social media networks and the internet at large have degraded local media sources to the point where they're non-existent in most communities. And so where do people turn for local news and information Uh Blogs or social media posts. And we, we, we need to build a better model to retain local journalism in our communities so people can uh, consume information about what happened at their city council meeting, what happened at the school board meeting. You know, none of that information is easily uh, accessible now in a professionally edited mm-hmm. format. And there are ways to approach that in Europe. Um, news councils are more prominent than uh, they are in the U.S. And maybe there's a public-private partnership where news councils are formed to support, maintain accuracy of information and be ombudsman for their their, their local media outlet. And we find uh, an economic model between grants, uh, and there's some interesting efforts happening there from the news project to, uh, what Pew is doing, you know, so there's, there's some exciting developments ahead there.
1: Okay. So if I am to put all this into just a few words, uh, civics, anonymity, put an end brother to anonymity, sort of, uh, data privacy. Support journalism, uh, in particular local journalism. I think in your book you also talk about responsibility uh, on social media for what is written there. Uh, there's also, if I remember well, there was also a, a question about concentration in the high tech sector. We don't have time to go through all of these, but I think you know this is really opening up for the discussion quite well. What I find interesting in uh, Cyrus in, in in this list of <coughs> of to dos, so to speak is that I'm really struck by how much they require state intervention, regulation, enforcement, you know, forbid concentration in the high-tech sector, forbid anonymity on social media. I I understand that I'm simplifying here, but still enforcing responsibility from social media on what is published on their platform, that kind of stuff. So, I mean, this is something that I I would say is pretty much European rather than American, right? It's more regulation than liberty. And I guess, you know, your calls for regulation actually really do sound like a, uh, you know, a call for a federal uh, data protection uh, regulation, which is basically the essence of the uh, of the general data protection regulation, the GDPR passed by the EU back in 2016. Does this mean that the Europeans are actually? Ahead of the curve, which you know, I know, I know, sounds uh, sounds weird to to hear from from an American, but uh, Bastien, uh, shouldn't there be a, a sort of dialogue between Europe and the United States to to try and find uh, a common regulation for the transatlantic space, considering that we are using the same social network? So, I mean, sh- shouldn't there be a transatlantic approach?
0: Uh, I will concede that uh, Europe is ahead. So um, I'm a proud American, but uh, in in, in this case, I'm really pleased with what I'm seeing across the Atlantic. Uh, (laughs) Bravo. Uh, Now, let me break up a little bit here how uh, I define regulatory reform. And I'll use Um, and for your audience overseas who may not be familiar with this, you can search it, but um, I use the model of Sarbanes-Oxley, which is legislation that was introduced um, to better regulate the financial industry after uh, a lot of the challenges that we we had here. Now, the interesting thing about Sarbanes-Oxley is that it puts the onus on the corporation to self-regulate, and if they do not act in the manners incumbent on them to be good corporations, then the heavy hand of government comes in and assists them. So what I'm really hoping to do here is find some middle ground, which is to say to the technology industry, there are challenges, they need to be addressed. Here are some framework to impact positive change, and it's incumbent on you to self-regulate. Should you not, then we'll have to come in and knock on your door. And I think that's a much better approach than having the heavy hand of government, uh, you you, you know, uh, over your shoulder persistently. Um, I'm I'm hoping that we can find
1: some, some middle ground there like television back in the 80s and 90s right you know when you when you when you hear the the f word or or another bad word on on television whether it's cable or not then you know the in the end it's cable channels that that are responsible for for what is on their platform
0: well right and you know there's a there's a two three second tape delay from Mm -hmm. live to prevent that (laughs) um now (laughs) that's an interesting idea which is before you um before you hit publish on your social media post, uh, you know, should you be given 30 seconds before it actually goes live so that, uh, you know, you, you can rethink what you, how, how often have we posted something and regretted it and then gone back a minute later to delete it before somebody screen grabbed it and used it, you know, against us uh, there, you know, there, there's some approaches that could be used there. Um,
1: I also think of plenty of people right now who are in this situation, but <laughs> yes,
0: uh, and um, I feel for them, uh, particularly <laughs> after one too many libations on a Friday night. Uh, <laughs> the, the yeah, the keyboard gets a little loose. Um, so you know, there's a, there's another approach to this, which uh, I think time is going to help resolve, which is um, the role of blockchain and authenticating through public and private keys and determining who gets access to what data. I see a world and and this seems to be uh, conventional wisdom now um, amongst those that are uh, focused on it, which is that ultimately we're gonna be in control of our own data. And we might be able to monetize that data ourselves, by granting rights to companies to access it in exchange for currency. And then you can go in and actually monitor, think about it like a genealogy tree, monitor um, where your data sits, who has access to it, where it flows, and then to control your own material, in a more direct manner. And I think we're still a minimum of five, six years away for that becoming a little more commonplace, but that introduces all kinds of additional challenges. We probably don't have time for in this discussion, but it gets into conversations around um, equity in data and is all data created equal? And is my data more valuable than someone else's because of my socioeconomic status or whatever, variable is determined useful to a marketer once again back to that one-to-one idea Uh, and if we move towards a society where people are generating income from their data that may further widen the um, equity gap uh, in in you know in america and elsewhere
1: Sure. Well, yeah, that, that's one of the risks. And I, I think Black Mirror, you know, the famous, the famed uh, Netflix series have been focusing a couple of times in their episodes on on this, in, in their own dystopias. Uh, before we finish, I just would like very quickly, uh, Cyrus, to talk about, you know, the rival mo- model right now, because, you know, there is a, on the one hand, there is this Transatlantic model, uh, which is mostly American, let's, let, let's face it, uh, you know, in which there is freedom, perhaps too much freedom, uh, which is dominated by the, by the famous GAFAM, Google, Apple, uh, Facebook, Amazon, uh, and Microsoft. Uh, but there is another counter model, of course, which is China with Huawei and the BATX, the uh, acronym for the four biggest tech firms, China, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, Xiaomi. And that model is one of extreme regulation, censorship where the CEO of Alibaba, does, when he does not follow the line, he disappears for a while. He reappears very much humbled and miraculously fallen into line with the Communist Party's bidding. And, and this is not what we want, right, you in know, in, in our country. So how do we make sure that, the you know, the, the, this famous hand of government is restrained? Uh, so how, how do we keep the, the, the sort of, of, you know, in between that, that, that you seem to be to, to be asking for?
0: Yeah. Quickly, before I jump to that, I did want to remind your audience about the Privacy Shield framework that is the EU-US framework designed by the Department of Commerce and the European Commission to create a um, transatlantic mechanism to comply with data protection. So, you know, we have... um, we we have these one-off examples at the state level in the U.S., but you've got the overarching, you know, um, GDPR model. Privacy Shield is intended to, you know, bridge the uh, uh, nation states across the Atlantic to help there. So um, I think we're already trying to see some cross-governmental cooperation. Um, Now, to your point about the Chinese government and regulation, as well as... um, Monitoring citizens. Um, Isn't this why Edward Snowden is where he is? Because he raised the alarm bells about the amount of information that uh, the US is collecting on its citizenry. And I would argue that we are already um, as close to a surveillance state um, as China is, based on the amount of data that the government has and is able to collect and glean on us. The penalties are, are not as severe. But in terms of government's ability to spy on us, I'd say that we're already there. So uh, Americans should understand that everything that we say and do is, by and large, already being collected and analyzed. I would say that the larger, well, that, that's a huge concern of mine, but, but uh, an, an equally con- a large concern I have is, as I mentioned earlier, The way that the internet is being weaponized, and let's look at an example um, that I don't think was fully understood in the last administration here in the United States. President Trump said two things that pertain to this conversation I agree with. One, uh, Section 230, that needs to be changed. I think that he had a um, personal motive for wanting to see uh, Section 230 modified, but I, I believe in principle that we we need to revisit that because times have changed and the consideration for it uh, has evolved but also president trump was pretty hard on tiktok and once again i think he was frustrated with how tiktok was used to embarrass him early on in the campaign cycle but what he wasn't wrong about is the communist chinese party's ability through corporations Established in that country to share data with the government. So, if consumer behavior via TikTok in the United States or globally is being utilized by the Chinese government to understand and target and manipulate media to influence outcomes, then TikTok is a Trojan horse that hundreds of millions of people have installed and are basically feeding behavioral insights mm. to to the Chinese. And so when President Trump was making the case that we should ban TikTok and understand Huawei and Tencent and how others are garnering information from us, We need to take that seriously because we already know that the FBI and U.S. government um, security apparatus have identified and shut down content farms originating with the Russians and the Chinese and the North Koreans and Iranians. and, And that's all being used to sow disinformation to create ill will amongst our citizenry and pit us against each other or seed that information, and then nature will take its course, and we will combat each other online and offline, as we've observed in the last couple of years, which was really the impetus for writing the book, not foreign governments um, weaponizing the internet, but just how all of that is creating the animosity where we are today, which in my belief led to the insurrection on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. And so you can see these pieces and components all working together to get to that unfortunate outcome and why I believe regulatory reform and oversight and changes need to be made because, you know, let's go back to to the outset of this conversation and your comments about um, my optimism and pessimism is that during the Vietnam War, Americans dropped leaflets from airplanes and that was how information was distributed and you know we talked about prior examples um from paul or even to paul revere's ride well now um the, the the internet just changes all of that in a much more expedited and, and troubling way and you know we need to fight
1: back well that sounds like a, a good conclusion but before we leave uh, i've got a, a couple of minutes and i'd like to invite you cyrus to take part in a quick experiment. Uh, We're going to try to make this a regular feature of our show, a Q&A lightning section. Three short questions, three very, very short answers. Yes, no, that kind of stuff. Does that sound good to you? I'm ready. Okay, so here we go. They're not easy questions, so here we go. Question number one, Donald Trump's ban on Twitter and other social media. Good thing, bad thing? Remember, no explanation, just yes or no? Bad thing. Question number two, should we dismantle the GAFAMs, Google, Amazon, Facebook, Apple, Microsoft? Not all of them. Question number three, is e-voting a safer option than made-in ballot? Potentially. Okay, one last for the road. Question number four, apart from Bombarded, what other book do you recommend us to read to fight back against the online assault of democracy? Oh, Peter Singer, um, Like Wars. Okay, well, that's it. Um I hope people can go and look at this option for their reading. But first, they should definitely look at Cyrus's book, Bombarded, How to Fight Back Against the Online Assault on Democracy. It is available in all good stores both online and offline. And you should also check out Cyrus's Twitter account to follow his work. That's at Cyrus K. And of course, while you are browsing the web, you should also visit IRI's website at IRI.org to check out what we do to promote democracy around the world, also with the help of Cyrus, both online and offline. Uh, This is the end of this episode of Think Atlantic. And thank you very much once again, Cyrus, for joining us on the show. Many thanks to Stanislava Astahova, uh, Hannah Montt, and Sam Johannes for producing this series. Uh, we will be back in two weeks with my guest, Christy Reich, and we will talk about Baltic security. In the meantime, if you like what you heard, please subscribe to the show, and of course, share it with your friends and colleagues. We love it when we get more listeners. Talk to you soon.